You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. We'll be discussing two versions of Henry V, Kenneth Branagh's 1989 film in which he starred, and Thea Sharrick's 2012 television production starring Tom Hiddleston. I'm your host, Alex Heaney, the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row. You can find me on Twitter at bwestcineast, that's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Mary Angela Rowe and Craig Rattan. Hi, I am a amateur theater enthusiast from Toronto. You can find me on Twitter at CRUT, C-R-U-T. Hi, I'm a contributing editor to The Seventh Row. You can find me on Twitter at Lapsed Victorian, and you can find some of my theater writing at The Seventh Row. Before the films we'll be talking about today were made, the most famous film of Henry V was Laurence Olivier's 1944 film. Olivier cut all of the anti-war bits in the play to make sure the film worked as a World War II propaganda film. Branagh's film is a direct response to Olivier's film and is often considered an anti-war film. These two films have dominated the conversation about Henry V for almost 30 years, so it makes sense to read Sharrick's version as a response to both of these films. It's neither pro-war nor anti-war. This is in line with Shakespeare scholar James Shapiro's interpretation of the play. In 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, he explains that Henry V was intended as a going-to-war play, showing us both the good and the bad. Before making Henry V, Branagh had played the title role on stage at the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1984. His film was, in many ways, considered a revolutionary film. Branagh aimed for a naturalistic approach, freeing the bard from years of frilly line deliveries. Henry V is also Sharrick's cinematic debut, though she was already an accomplished theater director. Her film is the final part in a four-part miniseries of the Henriad plays called The Hollow Crown. The series used the same cast in Henry IV Part 1 and 2, as well as Henry V, but Henry IV Part 1 and 2 were directed and adapted for the screen by Richard Eyre. So we're going to start by talking about the first two scenes of the play, the prologue and then officially Act 1, Scene 1, because these are really, really crucial for setting the stage for the production and what it's going to highlight and its sort of interpretation of who King Henry is who also gets called Harry, and in the previous, <laughs> Henry the Fourth Part 1 and 2 is called Hal, so we may actually be using those three names interchangeably. They're all the same person. They're all Henry V at this point, even though he goes by many names. Just depends like, how friendly you are with him. I feel like Hal is a good nomer for, like, uh, when we're talking about him and Henry the Fourth, and Harry or Henry can work for Henry V. Yes, Exactly. Which right. I will probably call him Hal if we're talking about whoring with Falstaff. Yeah. Try and be consistent, but no guarantees. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought the prologue was really interesting. So I watched them recently. I'd actually not seen the Brana before. I watched them recently on consecutive evenings, starting with the Brana version. 
and obviously it starts in a very theatrical way, actually backstage uh, with the with chorus starting, and you see you know the backs of sets and setting up all the different lights before leading right into the place. So it sort of sets a very theatrical tone off the top that is obviously very contrasted to the hologram. Yeah, it really sets it up as being like the court is a stage. This whole this whole thing is it sets up the entire film as being meta theater because the chorus is even backstage. Um, and then there's that big reveal where he opens the two big double doors and it's very dramatic and theatrical. And even the first scene kind of goes in with that where, where ta- the, the archbishop and the bishop are talking in, in close up um, and it's kind of dark and it's very like backstage and it's all sort of leading to the big reveal of the door behind them opening as they're about to head into court and the stage is going to be set with Henry V. Emma, you love this opening. So before we get to Thea Sharrix and how they're different, um, do you want to add? Sure. Well, do you think it's great? Of course I think the Brenna opening is great. Um, <laughs> I think we all agree on that, right? It's like pretty brilliant. Oh, oh my God. Um, yeah, it I is, think it's pretty iconic. Um, it's also like, it's interesting to contrast the first introduction of Henry in the Thea Sharrick one and in the, the Branagh one, because mm-hmm. in the Thea Sharrick one, we actually see Henry before he says a word, yeah. right? He's like galloping around on that white horse with this big red cape billowing behind him. Yeah. And he looks like so vigorous and so masculine. And he's actually like jogging into court. Like he's late. Yeah. Well, um, Yes, but it, it should be noted that he goes through a lot of passages. Like, he goes through all these corridors that are, like, very much like backstage corridors before he picks up his crown, plops it on his head, and heads in. Hilarious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really someone cool. has to hold it for him, and he, like, swipes it as he goes in. Yeah. Just, like, his last piece of uh, costume before he heads in. Um, yeah. And it, it really kind of humanizes him as sort of, like, just a guy. Like a, as, as opposed to a very dramatic... There's a very dramatic contrast to the Brana where he enters in silhouette from a very austere, enormous set of double doors, and it takes a while before you even get to see his face. Yes, Mm -hmm. the light coming through them. And for the James Bond fans at home, just in case you were wondering, um, in in the new film Spectre, the way in which the arch villain is introduced is very much absolutely 100%. I I would be shocked if this was not the case. An homage to the way in which Kenneth Branagh's Henry V enters in Henry V. Yeah, they are actually almost identically filmed. That's very, I hadn't actually realized that before. But yeah, it really, I mean, I think that entrance where he's in silhouette, as you were saying, with the light and the, the like large doors, it's, it's hugely dramatic. Like they're, they basically, he has a grand entrance. The first time you see him is as this pretty amazing, imposing figure which is how everybody else sees him as opposed to getting a private moment with him and seeing like, what is he like when he's not on? Mm-hmm. But I mean, one of the other things to note is what does this guy do once he enters the room? Right. Mm-hmm. The first thing Kenneth Branagh's Henry does is sit in the throne and he doesn't just sit. He sort of lounges like he belongs there in this big fur cape and it almost feels very comfortable for him. Yes. Whereas when Tom Hiddleston's Henry enters, he spends a lot of time pacing. And he like 
walks around the room a lot and speaks directly to his nobles. And he only sits down when the Herald comes in. And one of the things that I love about Branna's entry and Branna's first scene is that it instantly gives you this sense of power. Mm-hmm. The sense of a man who's extremely comfortable with command and who's actually a little bit terrifying. Yeah. Because lounging in his throne with no facial expressions, he is the entire presence of the room. He's not even doing anything. I mean, it's not just that, but he's also, he's very still. And when he speaks, it's mm-hmm. very quiet and very measured. Which, by yeah. the way, also yeah. what Christoph Waltz does, doesn't speak. Very still. Inspector. S- but Whereas, I, think, I would say that I think both production, both films, uh, give the impression of Henry they want to. I think it, it is very different, right? The Branna paints of a Henry who's very much the king and very much in control, whereas, and maybe it's because it's a continuation of the Henry IV in Sherrock's version, Henry is, you see him as younger and more human and perhaps a bit more you know, impulsive and immature. I would sort of disagree with that, actually. Because one of the things that I actually really liked about the Sherrock opening, uh, you can see that I mostly pay attention to the opening. It's like my favorite scene in the whole play. It's pretty important. Yeah. One of the things I like about the Sherrock opening is Tom Hiddleston spends a lot of time looking around at the other nobles. There's this clear indecision on his face. Mm -hmm. He's genuinely taking a very thoughtful, long time to figure out, do I want to go to war? And he's reading the facial expressions of the people around him. And it's like, she spends a long time with him in silence, going through that, clearly working through that in his head. Mm -hmm. This is a very, like, thoughtful Henry who's almost reluctant to go to war. At least he's very thoughtful about it. Whereas Branna's Henry is like, I'm already convinced. I just need you to give me the lecture. Right, but I think that's consistent with what Craig was saying is being about what the two different productions are about. That in Branna's, it's, it's like they treat the war very seriously from the beginning and they treat it as though, you know, he really does have a claim and he's ready to go to war and there's no indecision. Whereas in Thea Sharrick's, they, they, they allow a little more of the sort of, you know, this is kind of a, a dubious war. And we kind of know that too because we just watched Henry IV on his deathbed tell how go to war because yeah. that's the only way to get people to stop thinking about how I usurp the throne. I just sort of object to the phrase indecision because I actually think it's quite decisive. It's just a more measured process to get there. Yeah. Right. Think- and, and I'm probably thinking less of the actual scene with the nobles than the uh, interlude they put in before of him riding on the hills and running into the court, like we mentioned. Yeah. That, yeah. that just paints him as, as a younger king. But I think you're right. In the actual scene itself, he is taking the decision seriously. And the, the choices they make in the edits in that scene also, you know, are, are more ambiguous as opposed to the very uh, clear cut, uh, lecture that the Brana version has from the Archbishop. There's one like hilariously theatrical moment in the Brana version where the bishops are literally, it's a close up of Brana's face, and the bishops are literally right beside him, one whispering into either ear. Yes. <laughs> and you're like, 
this is not even pretending. No. Like, that, that's whereas just a that, shot that he comes back to multiple times in different contexts throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. One of the major differences, and Emma sort of gestured towards this, that Branna is still unseated, and so is everybody else in the court, in his version. And in Sharrick's, Tom Hiddleston's Henry V, when he is on his throne, first of all, the throne is on, has several steps underneath it, so it is physically higher than everyone else, mm-hmm. to a degree that Branna's most definitely isn't, not just because Branna is way shorter than super tall Tom Hiddleston, but also because Branna's is at the same level as all of the other seats um, in court. And I kind of have mixed feelings about how these two are staged because one of my issues with how Branna's staged, and I think that it's really smart and I like a lot of things about it, but I also feel like he loses so much energy from the actors by having everybody seated in that scene. That in some ways, you know, it's alive when you're seeing uh, Henry V in close-up being really terrifying and then it can be kind of dead when you're just seeing people seated um whereas i feel like there's a lot more energy in sharik's first scene at court because people are standing and you can really feel um and also henry v is moving he's walking around um she's often shooting him from below to give him extra majesty i think there are problems with how she shoots the scene and there are some kind of like rookie handheld moves and spinning around him um, that seemed very first dire- first-time directory. I'm not sure entirely work, but I do think it's an important and interesting choice, especially given when you how Henry appears throughout the rest of the play that Branna's has a lot of people sitting in rooms in the beginning, and it's not until they actually start out on their campaign that you see anybody really standing around, whereas people are standing from the start in Sharik's. A corollary to that, which was a point that I hadn't noticed at all, actually, I think this is all of a piece with the role that Henry's nobles play in each production mm-hmm. because they have a, they have a presence in Branna's production, but they're very much secondary. Yes. Whereas his nobles are hugely developed in the Sherrick production. And they all look really different. So you can tell them yeah. apart and you've seen people like um, Exeter in the Henry, the fourth part one and two. So like you actually already know, Oh yeah, these are dudes that used to advise his father. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that the Sherrick did a really interesting job in prioritizing the uh, the other uh, elites over the over the rest of the characters. But that I'll I'll want to talk about that more at a later point. Well, I mean, I think there's while we're still on this scene. I mean, I think the I guess tennis balls is like a little bit later, but this this goes in. It's, it's part of the same thing. It's it's part of the same thing, and and it and it goes with with this sort of energy is that in. Branna's when you know they're like oh I've got a we've, we've got a present for you from the Dauphin and he goes what treasure uncle he's like oh he's already seething and like this is gonna be so dumb and then you know he opens it and he gets real scary and mad real quick but doesn't move and nobody like touches the tennis balls they just are sitting there and mm-hmm. whereas there's a lot of movement with the tennis balls and a lot more action going on with them in Sharik's like, first of all, there's Antoine Lesser's, like, just absolutely amazing delivery of, of tennis balls where he pauses and, like, in a really high-pitched voice goes, tennis balls. Like, like yeah, it's hilarious. I would watch that on loop. And also the way in which Tom Hiddleston's Hal is kind of, like, rolling his eyes before they even open the treasure mm-hmm. and has to gesture to Antoine Lesser's um, exeter to be like, go on, open it. I guess we'll have to see. 
And then they actually, like, spill the tennis balls on the ground, and Henry goes and he picks one up, and he's tossing it around as he walks around the room, and then as he's giving his, you know, playing on the word mock speech, he actually throws the tennis ball back at the French ambassador as he's telling him to deliver his message back, like, the ball is literally in your court now. Hmm. I just, Kenneth Branagh's, like, absolutely freezing delivery of, like, we are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us. Pause. Everyone's like, oh, God, we're in trouble now. Mm-hmm. It's, like, oddly one of the most powerful lines in the entire play. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, for me, Hiddleston's tennis ball scene is just pure setup, you know? Yeah. Well, I think this is also really important because one of the things that makes Branna so unique is you could not do that interpretation on the stage. You just can't because in order to have that kind of quiet, seething stillness mm-hmm. and, you know, whisper delivery of the line, you need a close-up in order to be able to see him and to hear him. You could not do that on stage. Whereas what Sharrick does, you know, having, t- having Henry V walking around the room with the tennis ball, you know, that, that could very easily be transported onto even a proscenium stage. It's a little less clearly, you know, cinematic or relying on cinematic language than Branagh's is. That's a good point. And I think part of it's also linked to the idea that I think Branagh's Henry V is less nuanced in his motivations at the beginning, uh, which is not necessarily a criticism. It's just that it's very clear that he's uh, ready to go to war, ready to be very aggressive. And at that point, you know, when provoked, we'll take no prisoners, whereas it seems that, you know, we can discuss Tom Hiddleston's Henry as either more conflicted or more a more patient listener. But uh, it's a very, a very different interpretation where you're not entirely sure which which direction he's going to go in, maybe. Yeah. And I think I mean, this is a bit of a oversimplification, but to some degree, I think Kenneth Branagh's production is much more about a good king who is doing the things that he has to do and in so doing proving himself to be a great king whereas I think in Sharrick's production like Tom Hiddleston's Henry V is still figuring out how to be king like he's kingly but he has not figured out exactly how to do everything and so even when he's giving his speeches later there is less maybe not decisiveness but he has to will himself to say the things and convince himself of the speeches as much as he's convincing everyone else. Whereas I don't see an unsteady hand in anything that Branagh's Henry V is doing. And that's, I think that's all of a piece with how the battle scenes and the war scenes are filmed because in Branagh, like we get a lot of mud and grime and like, sort of general carnage, but it's not specific. Whereas in Sharks, you get, like, she has long stretches where you just linger on bodies. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene outside Harfleur where there's this, like, extended scene of boiling water getting poured on people. In... It's in one of the early battles. It's in... Like, they're trying to scale yeah, a wall. Sharks, you're talking about? Yeah, in Sharks. Okay. And I think... Part of that is because that Henry has to steal himself for war. Mm-hmm. Whereas Branagh's Henry is just like, yep, that's what it's going to take. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know if he has to steal himself for war because even his his how was, you know, pretty impressive and in taking down Harry Percy and, you know, he really had shown himself to be a warrior already, but he had never had to be the leader of an army. He had to be sort of a leader in the sense that he was a prince, so he was at the top, still at the top, but he was never fully in charge, which mm-hmm. now he has to do that. And even he knows that his claim on France is, like, kind of tenuous. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty shifty. And that, you know, he has other reasons for going to war. That's true, and he's ambivalent about that, whereas Henry's just like, this is what it takes to hold my throne, so we're just going to do that. Right, and I think the way that that scene is even played is it's not just Henry who's decided, who's already decided that they're going to war. It's that when the, it's a, I think it's one of, it's the bishop, one of the arch, or the archbishop who is telling him about Salic law. Like, mm-hmm. normally when I've seen it performed, it's, maybe it's delivered to the audience, or I think, or is delivered directly to, to Henry, as I think it is in Sharrick's. But in Kenneth Branagh's version, the archbishop goes around the entire room and looks at every single person in the court and is telling them that Salic Law says, we own this. Huh. Here we go, we have to go to war. So even his advisors are giving him this much more decisive, you totally have a claim on it. And I've seen complete polar opposites where the archbishops are basically doing a comedy routine of, yeah, of ha ha ha, Salic Law, ha ha ha, and then as clear as is the summer's day, and then everybody laughs because nobody had any clue what the hell they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Brana, it was very serious and clear cut, and preceded by the cloistered scene of the bishop and archbishop, where it's very conspiratorial and it makes it abundantly clear. That uh, that they're conspiring to make sure that the, the that Henry goes to war. Yes, and, and it's also like no one has pure motivations in Branagh's Henry. Everyone is being ruthless and using this war for their own quite personal ends. Whereas I think Hiddleston has a more has a greater sense of responsibility to the kingdom. Yeah, I think also. I mean, just the way that those scenes play is that in 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 Branagh's version there's much more as Craig said it's much more conspiratorial they're like the king is already is already super scary and we really want him to do this and so we need to behave in this way in order to get it done whereas Mm -hmm. I think in Sherrick's and and part of their discussion is actually like in voiceover as they're showing stuff happen they're showing um Henry I think on horseback is in that one, they're much more sort of taking the pulse of, they're talking about, oh, you know, he used to be wild, and he used to hang out and whore with Falstaff and be a thief, but he seems like he's probably going to be a good king, but is he going to be a good king? What kind of king is he going to be? Is he going to like this thing that we're trying to pass? Maybe not. And so they're much more trying to figure out, trying to take the pulse of what what kind of king he's going to be. And I know that the first time I saw Rana's, I found that scene kind of misleading because I was so worried about exactly, because they're talking about wanting to pass something or other. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. Yes. Henry, Henry was, had a bill that was basically going to confiscate a ton of church lands and church money. Right. And, um, and they're like, we have to do something so he doesn't pass that. We'll basically bribe him with church money for a war. Right. And the first time I saw that, I thought it was like, oh, it's all about this bill and that's what, what's so important here. And the bill is just, is just a MacGuffin to be like, okay, this is the reason that they have a motivation and also to 
give you have somebody talking about Henry mm-hmm. before you see Henry, which is actually maybe a problem with sharks, is that what you always have in a lot of Shakespeare is people talk up talk about the king forever, and then you finally see the king. Like even mm-hmm. Hamlet, people are talking about Hamlet, people are talking about Claudius, and you don't see them until after everybody's talked about them. And Sharon kind of denies us that by showing us Henry from the very start. But she also, like, the effect of that is to make him a much more personal Henry. Yep, yep. And I think that that, it works. Whereas, I, I mean, I think that the way that Sharrick does it, it really minimizes the other bill that they're trying to pass, and it really pulls focus on what's the deal with this king, in part because you really see them while they're talking about his wilder days. Mm-hmm. It is kind of hard to imagine Kenneth Branagh's Henry, like, frat boying it up with Falstaff. So I guess one of the things that really defines the kind of production that both Branagh and Sharrick have done are the edits that they've chosen to make to the text. The Branagh's film is about two and a half hours. Sharrick's is slightly less than that. Um, both of them spend quite a bit of time on the battle scenes, so they end up both cutting significant chunks of the text. And the kinds of things that they cut have a really big role to play as far as our interpretation of who Henry is. And also it's the film's sort of view about war and the world that we're living in, as well as like the general tone of the production. So I guess some of the things that are cut really have to, I mean, the first thing is that there's a bunch of edits that have been made that because of how they're made, give us a different sense of how ruthless Henry is and sort of what the tone of the production is. One of, one of those is the, there's this key scene that is very prominent in Branagh's where the three traitors are basically sent to their deaths by Henry, who almost gleefully, before turning super scary, hands them their death notes. And that's entirely not present in Sharrick's version. The other is that um, Bardock, who is one of Hal's buds from the boar's head, who he used to go thieving with, is still very much a thief. And he decides he's going to start stealing stuff in the middle of the Harfleur battle. York catches him. And in the Branna production, York catches him. And then they're, like, getting him ready to be hung. But they allow Henry to give the final, okay, he's going to hang now. And they spend a whole lot of time watching him hang and watching his body and his body and his legs are like swinging and framed for a really long time afterwards as other things are going on and even the chorus has a moment to go over to the hang- to the hanging bard off and look at him and be like oh henry you brute whereas that's handled entirely differently in sharks you do see bard off thieving but you also get a big scene with corporal nim and Pistol pleading with Fluellen to ask him, please don't hang Bardoff. He made a mistake. And Fluellen be like, being like, if Bardoff were my brother, I would still totally hang him. He deserves it. And by the time Henry even finds out that Bardoff is, needs to be hung, Bardoff is already dead and in the tree. And Henry has also a big reaction to it. Like, they tell him that Bardoff, you know, they say, do you know Bardoff? He's He's a thief, and he like has this very quick turn of the head where he realizes my friend Bardoff, and then he there's sort of this close up where he has to hide what's going on on his face that you know it's his friend, and there's flashbacks to his memories of partying it up with Bardoff as he sort of composes himself and goes, "All right, I'm going to now 
profit from this. I have to be a king, and I'm going to explain that what he did was wrong to everybody and give a speech about it. What are the other the other key ones? Fluellen. They go with that is um, how much Fluellen is present. Fluellen gets a whole lot of xenophobic jokes at his expense. He's super. He has gets a lot of the comedy, and he basically. Like, there's an actor who plays him in Brannis Henry V, so he, like, good luck even figuring out who he is if you don't know the play inside out and aren't paying attention. Or don't know your Welsh accents. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is, the Fluellen scenes in the Branna version are played literally in the trenches in the middle of a battle. Right. Which really sort of sucks the funny out of them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Especially because not only are they in the trenches, but, like, it's raining, isn't it? And it's, yeah, it's raining, and they're covered in grime. And you can hear the battle in the background, and it's, it's, it's pretty... It, does, it doesn't make much sense to be there, honestly. Yeah. You're kind of like, you, you chopped out most of Fluellen. Why don't you just go all the way? Including the fact that Fluellen's view about what is going to happen to Bardock is basically superfluous and unimportant in Branna's because it's all about Henry V making the decision to kill his friend. Yeah. And Branna's Fluellen basically becomes a nameless additional soldier in the, in the core. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One of the other interesting choices between them, I think, that, that helps highlight the, the decision about how to portray Henry was the, the killing of the prisoners at the end of the battle scene. Yes. So, I mean, it, it's interesting in that so I, we, we'll talk a lot about the, the different edits that were made to the scenes during the battle, but in the Brana version, there's a you know very clear and prominent scene where the French soldiers towards the end have cut through the front lines, snuck around back on their on horseback, and slaughtered the uh, the boys that came with the English troops, uh, leading to a lot of you know a, a pretty gut wrenching scene. There, Brana's carrying uh, carrying Falstaff's boy. Whereas, but, but there's no, there's no revenge killings there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I should just to add to that while you were still on it is Falstaff's boy is killed. Brannock carries his dead body on his shoulders after the war. Well, like a three minute extended cut. Yeah. It's super symbolic. And they also, Bren also keeps in the dialogue about how, you know, it's against the, the, the honor code of war that you don't kill the boys. And yet the French did it anyway. And so when, Brandon gets angry and he's like, I was not, I I don't know what the line is exactly. It's like, I wasn't angry until now. Mm -hmm. He has real reason to be angry because the French violated the the code of war. Whereas Hiddleston, honestly, it was so shocking. It seemed like almost psychotic, you know? Yeah. Like, here's this man who's been incredibly thoughtful and incredibly cognizant of casualties. And here's this play that's been really thoughtful about depicting the horrors of war. And suddenly this, like, nice, thoughtful king is just like, kill all those prisoners. Why? Whatever. Right, and it's it's basically over. He's upset that York is dead. Yeah. And, I mean, York was always going to die, but it's, like, kind of a foregone conclusion when York is basically asks to lead the troops into battle. Like, you know that's, uh he's going to die. People die in war. That's a thing that happens. Yeah, especially if they're the first one in the scrum. Um, and so for Henry V to suddenly go... Now I'm angry that the guy who I let lead my troops into battle is dead. And he doesn't even die, like, in battle. He dies looking at Falstaff's boy and, like, smiling at him. And then he dies. Suddenly he's so angry that he's going to kill the prisoners, which is another violation. Like, 
at least it makes sense in Brenna's that it's like one violation of war honor for another violation of war honor. Whereas here it's just like, it's just didn't, the French didn't do anything wrong by killing their enemy. And, yeah. and, and it was made, you know, more graphic by the, you know, the herald arriving from the French just after the prisoners are slaughtered and telling him that he won. Yes. To, so I think that, like, I mean, that's a, I think an interesting choice that to me kind of brings up, you know, historical allusions to World War One and the, the battle continuing between the two sides, even after the peace agreement had been signed with no one really knowing at the front. Yeah. No, that's a really good point, especially because... In in Branna's, like, he's always in the thick of war, in the mud. He's, like, kicking up mud because in slow-mo because Branna always has to kick up water in slow-mo in his movies of Shakespeare. And he never has a chance to survey the field, and so by the time the French come and tell him the day is his, he it's a total shock. Whereas yeah. when the French come and tell Hiddleston that the day is his, like, he actually already had time to examine all the bodies on the ground. Like, he's standing on a body field on the on the field full of bodies looking at it and can probably tell that they're mostly French, especially get, considering the numbers that the play claims are what happened, like 10,000 French to 25 English or 125 English. Like you yeah. can see that. You can see that. That would be very, very visible on the battlefield if you had time to stand there and look at it. So why do, why do we think that Sherrick made that decision about Henry slaughtering the French prisoners is it like again? Because I think you made a good point, Emma, that it it seems out of character given the production of what we've seen of Henry before. Is it is it is, what what's the motivation there? Do you think is it just because Henry's an elitist and really only cares about his six named friends? Only <laughs> um, people who get the Agincourt speech. If I had to theorize, and this is kind of off the top of my head, so shoot me down if this sounds crazy. But I think it has to do with the deletion of the scene about the traitors, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. It's overcompensating. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because, frankly, the scene with the traitors does that better and is a more interesting scene. Well, and also he's justified in killing them because they're traitors. Yes. Whereas... Not just, like, it's like they cut the traitor scene to make him seem like a good guy by not being a ruthless killer. But if you're going to compare two sets of ruthless killings, one is way worse. Yeah. Unless the attempt also, was to show was to try and attribute his ruthlessness to just having been part of the, the horrors of war. Mm. You can interpret it as being like kind of an abrupt heel turn almost. Like this war has fundamentally, like exactly what you said, like this war has fundamentally changed him and turned him into like a bad person. Yeah. Or maybe not just a bad person, but, like, somebody capable of cold-blooded murder. A a very scary man and not in a good way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to Branna's traitor scene for a second. Yeah. Um, Because, again, one of my favorite scenes in that film version. I think it's done boringly in a lot of productions. But in the Branna film version, you really get how that scene has hardened this man. Right? It's a very personal betrayal. Yeah. It's like, you were my bosom friend and you betrayed me and you have fundamentally changed how I relate to this war. Whereas Hiddleston doesn't have that moment, you know? He doesn't have that transformation. And the other thing I find really weird about the Sherrick version is that Hiddleston is always, like, on a white horse in spotless armor. Well, oh, yeah, okay. So I'm going to, like, agree and disagree with you at the same time that... 
I think the big, the personal betrayal that Henry feels or the personal, it's not a betrayal, but like the personal stakes that Henry has is that his buddy York gets killed in battle, which is much sillier because it's like, well, yeah, your, your friends are going to die. Yeah, those are lame stakes. But that, there, that it's still a personal thing that gets, gets at him. And yeah, I totally, uh, I do agree with you about how he just like does not get dirty. Um, yeah, it's really weird. Which, and even when he's in the battlefield, he's got like artful mud smears. <laughs> well, and when he delivers the once more into the breach speech, I find that part particularly hilarious. Like he's not even dirty yet. All he has is slightly messy, sexy hair. Yeah. <laughs> and then by the time he gets to Harfleur, it's his Harfleur speech. He's got like a bit of mud on his face, but he still basically has like perfect hair and looks totally fine. What's well, mm-hmm. It's clearly because God won the battle, not Henry. Come on. <laughs> right. And it's also just to let you know that he's like, I mean, granted his Coriolanus at the Donmar warehouse was done a year later, but to let you know that he's no Coriolanus because Coriolanus had his entire face covered in blood. <laughs> oh, such a good production. Oh, my God. Oh, I was going to say something more about the traitor scene and how it's really well shot. So that's also, that is the first scene in Branna's film where people are standing. And so that's also the first scene of, like, on their way or part of the campaign, whereas everything else was seated in rooms. Um, And so that scene also has a lot of energy to it. And I think one of the advantages of that is it really gives that scene a jolt of energy because now you have people standing and it's, like, a big turning point for Henry and you really feel that. And in addition, they do a really nice thing where they line up all all of the traitors and in one frame you see... Branna going from one to the next as the camera sort of slowly moves with each. And they're kind of basically turning them all into like numbers almost, like trader number one, trader number two, trader number three, which is kind of like how he has to think of them in order to hand them there. I think they're introduced well with the prologue scene that immediately precedes it, both setting the scene and giving the momentum through like the really shouty prologue, really shouty chorus. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it 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 adds to that sense of momentum. Like I think it's it's overdone definitely at some points in the play, and I'm not a huge fan of how shouty Brana's once more into the breaches. But uh, at that point, it really helped add to the the momentum of the scene. I think right, and I think the other thing that that scene does is the way he turns is it really lets you see how he turns his words around because he starts off because he really tricks them kind of like they're. He acts as though he's still buddies with them. They're saying you should give a death penalty to, to these people. And he says, well, if I do that, then what am I going to do with real traitors? And mm-hmm. then later he's like, ha-ha, I knew you were real traitors all the time. I did this just to fuck with you. Look how clever I am with words. Which is the same thing that he does in the, in the opening scene with the French ambassador where he turns mock around where he's like, you know, don't, don't underestimate how what use I made of my wild days, of my mm-hmm. wilder days. And maybe that's part of why in Sharik's version, like, because they've cut that scene, the way that that mock monologue plays is it goes, like, it's much more measured and, like, really front and centered. Like, you really see him playing with words, and they really take the time to, like, not just be like, oh, look, he's so clever, it's going quickly. Like, they spend time to, like, allow you to see that he's being clever and that he's doing a very false staff turning words around on people kind of thing so that you really see how he's made use of his wilder days. Like I'm doing it right now in the way I'm using words. This is what Falstaff does. And so it sort of allows, it sort of makes that play there. Whereas I think in Bran is he does the mock thing and it's clever, but you sort of, it's not until the second one where you see, Oh, he's really clever. He's doing this multiple times. 
Yeah, but it's also like Bran is king is not an intellectual king, right? Whereas Hiddleston's king is. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and that's the other thing, I mean, speaking of edits, is that you don't really see Bran as king by himself thinking much. Like, mm-hmm. The only time you get that is his soliloquy where he's talking about, you know, how he doesn't feel stable as king and how he can't sleep. Whereas Tom Hiddleston's, you see him alone a lot. You see him alone on the horse. You see him alone as he's going into the court scene at the beginning. Even as they're heading into battle, you see him alone on the ship deck where no king of England, if not king of France, is delivered like as a personal mantra. Mm-hmm. As a, because no one else is in the room. He's just saying that to himself as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, a, a great big statement. Like he has a lot of time to spend thinking by himself in a way that Kenneth Branagh's we don't actually, at least we don't spend the time with him if he has that kind of time. Well, there's one scene where Hiddleston is like, he's in the ship and he's literally just sitting down pouring over papers alone below decks, right? That's where he says no king of England, if not king of France. Oh, right. Duh. Moving on. But no, I think the really interesting contrasts in Henry's, uh, we want to get into it just a bit here. And I mean, coming at it from having worked in politics, like just very different types of leadership where Brana's, uh, I mean, in all the monologues, is very much sort of a, a sort of classic portrayal of leadership, giving grand speeches to large crowds and like very much inspiring and inspirational, but with no real connection with individuals it's almost an abstracted depiction of leadership mm-hmm. whereas in the hiddleston performance is there's like a huge emotional intelligence in his leadership and yeah. in the opening scene when he's debating whether going to war during once more under the breach and particularly in the saint crispin's day speech all of the lines are delivered like one-on-one to individuals there's no sort of speaking to an abstract crowd it's all like individually connecting and making eye contact with different characters. So I thought was sort of a, a fascinating contrast. Right. And he touches and- people like Brenna never, never comes into physical contact with anyone. Right. Whereas Hiddleston is like grabbing people all over the place. <laughs> Such a that. millennial king. in the night. I, I, I mean, I think this also plays into the meta narrative and the idea about stages and, and it being theater because in, in, Branna's, which as we know, like it starts off as we're heading into the theater. Every time Branna gives one of his big speeches, he's either like on a horse looking down at his people or he's found a literal, like a stage on which to give his Agincourt speech, which is a wagon, but he's standing in a wagon and he's looking down at people. And then we cut between him giving his speech and then the people who are looking up at him who basically look like punters in the stalls of a theater looking up at somebody giving a speech. And so that's the way in which you see, like, you know, he's found a stage and he's giving his speech. And that's how you feel that, you know, he's creating the ceremony that makes him king. Whereas I think that meta narrative is still present, but in a very different way in Hiddleston's, which is that, and this is consistent with how they use close-ups throughout the Hollow Crown series, is that you see, when you see a close-up of Tom Hiddleston, you see what he's hiding from the, from the people around him. Like, for example, you see his hurt at the fact that he ha- that Bardock is dead and how he was his friend and how he can't let anybody see that. You see his loneliness. You see, like, all of his feelings that, like, he can't show people because he's king. And so you see him actively constructing his performance, even though you don't actually see him on a stage, even though he's, you know, always at the same level as the people he's talking to when he's giving those speeches. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the choice of shots really humanizes... Hiddleston's and and gives you 
of you're right. It, it's filmed in a very effective way to give you that interior life of Henry that often could go amiss either on a larger stage production or on less astute uh, film versions. Yeah. As a sort of counterpoint, I basically totally agree with you. That's awesome. And I had not noticed that before, but the thing about Branagh's Hamlet, uh, not Hamlet, Henry is that he, a, he's completely become his role, right? There are really only two moments where you get, a sense of the man breaking out. And one, a little bit, is the betrayal scene. Yeah. And two is the ceremony monologue. Yeah. That's a little quick. And I think that makes the ceremony thing much more powerful. Yeah. Because it's the only insight you get. It's the only point at which he is not completely embodying this role. And I mean, the other thing I should mention is that the one exception for um, Tom Hiddleston's is that whenever he's giving a motivational speech to his troops, he's on the same level as them. Mm. One difference is when he gives the Harfleur speech of, you know, will you yield in this avoid? And he's getting super scary. That's done on a horse. Yep, on a white horse, no less. On a white horse, no less. No white hat, but white horse. And the French are all on the same, are all on the ground looking up at him on the horse. Like, he has to create a stage for himself in order to give this performance of being a scary ass king because he doesn't necessarily quite feel it yet like that's him putting on a show and that's the whereas he doesn't have to put on a show in the same way for his men that part of how he inspires them in in Sharex is that he connects with them personally and emotionally mm-hmm. but going back to your point before when you were saying that you don't think Branagh's Henry V is a particularly intellectual king I think one of the one of the places where I might sort of take exception to that is the the scenes that happen at, at night at camp before the before the Battle of Agincourt, mm-hmm. when he goes around to take the pulse of the people. To me, the way it plays out in Branagh's is is he's he's doing research. Hmm. He's trying to figure out, okay, so what do they think of how I've been leading so far? What are they looking for? How are they feeling? What do I need to do to motivate? And you see versions of his arguments that he makes in his Agincourt speech in the discussions he has with Pistol and the men. And, uh, you know, like about how he'd always want to be with the king and he doesn't hope that the king is there alone and that turns into we happy, we few, we happy few. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's a very calculated move on Henry's part that he's going around. He's like, okay, so how do people, how am I doing? What's going on? How can I how can I inspire them? And then you see the the threads that then become his really passionate, inspiring Agincourt speech. Whereas I think Hiddleston's Henry V has a totally different reason for going around at camp. He's lonely. He makes yeah. human connection. The only mm-hmm. way he can talk to his old buddy Pistol is to pretend to not be himself. The only way he can talk about how he's how the king is just a man and feel like a man is to not be himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him, it's about emotional connection and you're feeling his loneliness, which then pays off later when he finally, when he gets together with Catherine and he's finally got somebody who's his equal, who he can be emotionally vulnerable with, I guess, without honest with maybe yeah, honest with, without having to pretend to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. And just on the note of that camp scene, I mean, that's one of the other big differences between the two versions, right? Is that in the Hiddleston, the glove scene is left in where they challenge to the to the duel afterwards in yep. regards to yep. the trading the gloves. 
and that's entirely entirely excised from the Brana, save for some visual references that are left in if you know what's going on, but otherwise it would be meaningless to you. Yeah, I wonder if they had that in Brana's and if they cut it in the edit, and that's what happened. Huh. I don't know. That would be interesting to, to figure out. And, and I think that maybe also plays into what you were saying, Alex, is that the is that in, in uh, the Brana version, without that scene, it's much more it's much more focused, the camp wanders, and focused on sort of the issues that are being presented for the next day, whereas the glove scene sort of like adds this new and different twist and, and almost makes him more, it makes Henry more combative and maybe less vulnerable right. than he appears with that scene. I think, I also- think it makes him more playful, actually. Huh. Because he's like, He's like, yeah, I'm the king and I can kind of do whatever I want. So I'm going to pretend to be this guy and I'm going to engage in this like funny little almost combat that is never going to come to anything serious. Yeah. But Brana would never do that because he's not that kind of king. Yeah. He does not, not sort with him, except for research. No, no plebs. The other thing that I... I going back to the meta theater is that the way that the Brana camp scenes are shot is it basically kind of creates a bunch of little stages on which we're going to have a discussion. And then Brana pretty much always enters from the left side of the frame and he comes in and they're already talking and he's like, I'm going to join in on your conversation and we're going to discuss this issue and I'm going to do my research and take my notes and then I'm going to head off and talk to the next set of people and see what I can get. And there's much less that he's hiding behind his hood than what, like, I think Hiddleston's performance behind the hood is actually amazing. That he's, especially when he's talking to the the guy who he ends up with the glove quarrel with, like, he's sitting down and hooded, but he's actually really animated. You can see the theater training there. And when you actually see his face, it's really, like, it, it's really important. But I could see that if that were done, like, on a stage, that scene would play for that would play to the balcony because of how he's moving inside his cloak. But again, Brana's whole thing is that his Henry is still, so he couldn't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, one of my sort of issues then with Sharrick's and the way that they deal with this camp scene is that like, if in Brana's the going around is doing research in order to build the Agincourt speech, I kind of have a problem with Sharrick's in that it's not about research. And so then when he gives his Agincourt speech, he only gives it to his closest buddies, at which point it was like, so what was the point of going in disguise in order to do your research if you're, like, not even going to give the speech to the people that it's relevant to? That you were, like, that you had to, like, it's not like you had to go in disguise in order to have a chat with York. Yeah. I mean, my interpretation of that would be, and I, and I, I, I haven't really thought about the visits as research before. And I think you're right. I think that reading holds well for the Brana version, but I think I've always sort of thought of that scene as answering his own personal insecurities leading up to the war, sort of on the eve of battle, his, his 11th hour doubts and wanting to test his beliefs and thoughts and whether his men have faith in him on the night before. And I think under, under that reading, then it still makes sense on, uh, in the, the Hiddleston version where he, you know, yeah, he, he goes and he has the conversations, but it's really just to assuage himself 
And then the next day, he when he when he gives the St. Crispin speech, it doesn't matter necessarily who he's who he's talking to, and that the rest of the people aren't there. It's, I mean, it feeds back into the. I, I think he's a bit of an elitist, but. Well, that's kind of actually that. No, that's a really good point, though, because I think that's kind of a problem considering that we've seen him as Hal. Because one of the things that makes Hal really unique and that basically what is the entire point of Henry IV Part One, with respect to Hal's character arc is that what makes Hal unique is he knows how to talk to nobles and he knows how to talk to plebes. And he is equally comfortable in both of their companies. And if Hal is now, like I know he had to turn away Falstaff, like that, that's, that's just part of the role. But if now it's like, he, what was the point in having this super inspirational speech if he's only going to give it to his elitist friends? Like, what was the point of all the research he did in learning at, of whoring and thieving at the boar's head if he hasn't made better, if he hasn't made use of his wilder days now in order to give an inspirational speech to people that you would think a king wouldn't know how to talk to? I mean, this is part of why, this is part of why I think that this is just like a wrong interpretation. Like, I can see where you get there, but it's just wrong. Because... Which interpretation, sorry? Which is- Sherrick's version, okay. where he's, like, only talking to a group this big of rich people. Yeah. I think Because so. not so much for the doing research reason that you talk about, although that's a valid point that I'd never thought about, mm-hmm. but because that whole, like, sequence in the camp is about the king, for whatever it's worth, getting close to the doubts of common men. Yes. And empathizing with common men. Yes. Which is all um, Henry the Fourth Part One is about, too. Yeah, precisely. But in a, I mean in a different way. Yeah, sure. But um, it's all consistent with the character that we've come to know. Sure. It it just doesn't it doesn't make character sense, mm-hmm. you know? Even even omitting Henry the Fourth. Like it just it doesn't make character sense for this guy to go out and empathize with people and struggle to get them to empathize with him and then basically throw that away by talking to the people who already get him. Yeah. Like it just, I mean, I think the point that Craig made, which I, I think what's valuable is the idea that he's giving the speech to individual people. The problem with it is that there should be plebes there too. It shouldn't just be that he's giving them to his friends. Like when yeah, it's supposed gives, to be meaningful. He's giving something back to his men who are about to give their lives for him. Right, and when he gives the once more onto the breach speech, it's not just to the nobles who like don't have to go over the breach. Yeah. Um, but he actually looks at you know he looks at Exeter. He looks at the he looks at the plebes individually, and he gives that inspirational speech to each of them individually. Just like what was the point of giving a touch of Harry in the night? If which by the way, it's like. That phrasing, it doesn't play well in modern age. <laughs> Lines that have not <laughs> aged well. <laughs> my time, Harry, visit. <laughs> Awkward, anyway. I see your point, and I think I might agree with it, but to play devil's advocate for a second, if we look at the textual like origins of it, I mean, Harry's responding quite directly to doubts expressed by the nobles, right? Yeah. It's, it's the doubt that's expressed that prompts his speech now, of course, then it's still a choice in the director to have those doubts be in a group of nobles entirely separate from all of the plebes who are preparing for war. But it's it's also interesting in that I think that Hiddleston's is much more a calm, confident production of it. He's almost he's sharing his peace in the in the outcome of the battle 
and confident, like quiet confidence with the other nobles. Whereas, which I think maybe you could say helps reinforce the, the image of him sort of finally as a, as a true, confident, comfortable king. Whereas in the Brana version, it's very performative in, mm-hmm. you know, both the, the staging that you mentioned being on top of the wagon, but just the, the delivery in that it, it's an inspiring speech that is being given to inspire others. Yeah. Now, I think that's, you make a really good point, too, about just even the way in which Henry hears the doubts that he's then responding to. That, like, in Sharik's, they're all just kind of standing around, and he's kind of standing around, and he hears them, and then he goes... Don't say that. I mean, he walks in, but he's also like, you know, he's like, oh, don't say that, and then gives his speech. Whereas in Branna's, which is sort of consistent with my idea of, like, research, is that he just magically appears at the right time from, like, behind a tree. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's time for my big speech. I have prepared this impressive speech, and and I have to deliver it. Conveniently, the orchestra is ready, too. (laughs) Yeah. And those strings start swelling mightily. Yeah. Whereas I think Hiddleston feels much more spontaneous and emotional. And it's an emotional call to arms as opposed to just uh, like arousing. And that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Next part of this discussion will be available to download on Monday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. dot